For our scripture reading this morning, we're going to begin in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19 is where we're going to pick it up. And then we'll read through verse 20 of chapter 4. Galatians 3, verse 19. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scripture hath included all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that he might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Albeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage, Ye observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, ye despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record 
that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that ye might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. We read that far in God's Word. And this morning we consider verses 4 through 7 of what we have read of chapter 4. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning in this Advent season, we again consider the wonder of God's grace in the sending of His Son. That's what we read here. This text is about, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son. We saw last week with regard to the wonder of God's grace in sending His Son, that that was a work not only of God the Father, but also God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, the entire triune being in all three persons, sent the Son. It's a work of the persons in the union of God's being. And we saw too that this must be because, as the text informed us last week, God's work of sending His Son was for the purpose of salvation. And all salvation is of God, and no salvation is simply of one person, but the work of all three. Last week, when we considered this wonder work from another passage, John 3.16, there were especially two points of emphasis in that passage. The first was that this was a conscious, deliberate act of God. Number one, because that text indicated it had a purpose. God sent forth His Son with a purpose to do something, to save. And in the second place, we know that this was a conscious act of deliberation on the part of God because it was rooted in His love. What ultimately explains the sending of the Son of God into our world is not even the will of God and the deliberation of God, but behind the will and deliberation of God is His love. For God so loved the world, He sent His Son. This passage, too, reminds us of that deliberation of God when it tells us that what God did in the sending of His Son was when the fullness 
of the time was come. That phrase is a phrase that indicates the fullness of time is that time that had arrived according to the will and purpose of God. The time that God had appointed. When that point of time was reached, fully and completely, God sent His Son. So, this passage emphasizes that will and deliberation of God in sending His Son also. The second thing that was emphasized in the text we saw last week was that the purpose of God in the sending of His Son was universal. God did not send forth His Son simply to save a person or to save a particular group of persons to save the Jew as opposed to save the Gentile, save the men and leave the women behind. But God sent His Son to save the world. He sent His Son in love for the world. And we carefully explained what that meant. The universal salvation of Jesus Christ may never be forgotten when it comes to God sending His Son. Now, this passage adds more instruction and knowledge so that we might better understand the richness of the grace of God sending forth His Son. This particular passage emphasizes the means God uses to send forth His Son. This is the passage that ties it specifically to His birth, His conception and birth by the Virgin Mary. This is the point being made when we read that God sent forth His Son made of a woman. Furthermore, this passage emphasizes more about the purpose. We read previously that God sent His Son to save the world. And here we learn that this purpose of God also concerns redemption. Redemption. And then also closely related adoption. So it expands our understanding of what salvation consists of and how God works it. But this passage is also different from the previous passage which emphasized the universality of the work of God. This passage emphasizes the particularity of it. When God sent forth His Son in love for the world and to save the world was that the entire world of human beings head for head. And the answer of this text is no, absolutely not. He came to save, He came to redeem, and He came to adopt those who were under the law. That's not all men but a particular group of people. So consider with me this morning the general theme, God sent His Son, and now the more particular theme to redeem us from the law. We consider in the first place the work. The work that God did and God intended that is, the purpose of God in sending forth His Son in this particular passage 
is, of course, a work of salvation. It's not setting forth a completely different work, an unrelated work to the work of salvation, but it is an aspect of that salvation. It broadens our understanding of salvation, lest we simply take the work of God and say, well, it's salvation. Our understanding of that could be and would be impoverished if not that the Bible also describes it in terms of our text. And so we must understand that. The text expands our understanding and thus our praise and honor and glory of God for this work of salvation. Now in the text, that work of God sending forth His Son is in the first place that He was made under the law and made of a woman. <clears throat> we must understand that to be two closely related works of God that really are one. One work, in other words, with two aspects to it. First of all, when God sent forth His Son, He was made under the law. The law there strictly refers to the law of God as God gave it by the hand of His servant Moses on Mount Sinai. That this is the reference becomes clearer later in the passage where there is specific reference to Moses and Mount Sinai. But that's also evident from the context. He's speaking to those whom he said were governed as the children of Israel as schoolmasters. He calls them those who were of the children of Israel and governed as schoolmasters. That's verse 24 of chapter 3, who said in the Old Testament they were under tutors and governors until Christ should come. And the law about which the apostle speaks, he then goes on and says, came 430 years after Abraham. So the reference clearly is to those who are under the law of Moses. The emphasis of the passage is on what we often call the ceremonial aspect of that law. That is the reference when twice he refers to the weak and beggarly elements of the world. If you ask what in the world he's referring to there, he's specifically referring to the weak and beggar elements of the ceremonial law given by the hand of Moses. And that's clear when he specifically refers to those laws, defining them as Jews, and then gives examples, which he gives in verse 10 of chapter 4. He says, you, you observe days and months and years and Sabbaths. What's he referring to there? And the answer is he's referring to those special days and months and Sabbaths that were laid out by the ceremonial law given by Moses. That's why he refers especially to the fact that the law lacked power. does so in verse 21 of chapter 3. It lacked 
power to give righteousness and to work righteousness. And although it's a bit more difficult to explain, we should also see that the law referred to here is the entire law of God given by the hand of Moses at Mount Sinai, which therefore then includes the two tables of the moral law. I bring that up because it is an important feature of the federal vision, the heresy of the federal vision, that they interpret redemption from the law and salvation from the law that's being taught in Romans and taught here in Galatians as being strictly the ceremonial law so that they would say we are redeemed from the ceremonial law so that we're no longer Jews but not from the moral law we're still under that we haven't been redeemed from that in any sense whatsoever but that's not true that's not true that's clear because the text makes no such distinction. The text doesn't say you are redeemed from the ceremonial aspects of the law, even though that's clearly the emphasis. It says we are redeemed and Christ redeemed us from the law. And the moral law belonged to the law that God gave by the hands of Moses. Besides that, Besides that, it says about that law that it was a schoolmaster in the Old Testament to bring us to Christ. Say what you will, the Reformed and Presbyterian churches that are creedal have always referred to the moral law as our schoolmaster. That when the Apostle here is speaking about a schoolmaster that helped bring them to Christ, the Apostle was also and especially referring to the moral law of God. And if you doubt me on that, simply open your Heidelberg Catechism and read through again the section on the law, where although it's presented as the rule for a thankful life, we talk about the strict preaching of the law as being necessary to identify and point out our sin and thus more and more bringing us to Jesus Christ. Of course the difficulty is in explaining how it is that when we're redeemed from the law which includes the moral law how it is then that that law still remains in place. How it is then that it still has authority over us. And it's assumed that the difficulty is explained by some this way. That in the same way we are redeemed from the ceremonial law, we must also be redeemed from the moral law so the conclusion is that that law and the other aspect of the law, 
We are redeemed from in the same sense. In other words, it's no longer in effect. But that's not true. And that's not what the Reformed creeds teach. So it is a difficulty to be explained. But when we read in the text that the Son was sent in such a way that he was made under the law, it's saying that Christ was made in such a way and sent in such a way that he came under that entire law. He was made under both the ceremonial as well as the moral aspect of that law. Now what do we mean by that? What it means simply is that he was subject to all the requirements of that law. He wasn't able to simply dismiss them by appeal, perhaps, to the fact that he was the Son of God. Jesus couldn't simply minimize them or walk or live any old way he wanted to. And he demonstrated that in his life, too. It's quite amazing when one considers the sending of Christ into the world, how he was under that law. He was circumcised already on the eighth day. Already at the age of 12, we find him in the temple going through the ceremonies of the law. He repeatedly returned to Jerusalem to observe the great feasts of that law. And of course, he lived under that moral law too which is why the Pharisees and Sadducees were forever trying to trip him up on whether or not he kept the fourth commandment. This is really astounding for us. This is one of these passages that we might read and just read right over and never understand truly what it means and the grace of it all. This is astounding when you think about it. Here is the Son of God as the Son of God, He is the lawgiver. The law itself is an expression of His own will. He is sovereign. He is free. He is dependent on no one and nothing. He is righteousness itself and defines it. He is the one who has the right and duty to lay upon whomever He wills what His own law is. And then that same God, even the Son of God, the one who is over the law, sovereign over the law, who is the judge according to that law, subjects himself, comes under that law. And let's remember to add to it a law that the text itself says includes the weak and beggarly elements of the world. Those ceremonial laws, those laws that were always intended simply to be types and pictures. He comes under that. Secondly, he is made of a woman. He is made under the law and made of a woman. This too is astounding when we consider it's talking here about the Son of God. The Son whom God sends, we saw last week, is the pre-existing, eternally existing Son of God. 
the one who is begotten of God eternally, God out of God, light out of light, the eternal one, the one who is the I am, the one who needs nothing, is subject to nothing, under nothing, is made, is made of a woman. To be made means you become something that you were not previously. Think about that. The God who is eternal, who changes not, is made of a woman. That's astounding. That's amazing. This, of course, is related to the other work. It's closely tied to the other work. And the relationship is this. When the text tells us he is made of a woman, it's telling us how it was that he was also made under the law. The idea is that exactly because he is made of a woman, exactly that way, he is also then made under the law. And again, the idea of the text is very clear. This is how it happens. This is how it occurs. God, who is over the law, God who gives the law, a God who sets forth that law, subjects himself to his own law by being made of a woman. If he's not made of a woman, then the idea is he is not then made under the law. The one is necessary for the other. This is one reason the word woman is used. The reason is that this woman, this woman whom he is made of, that is, he comes out of her, his flesh is from her flesh, exactly because he is made of a woman, and that woman explains why he is under the law, because he comes under the legal obligations of who and what she is. We recognize that all the time. Who you are of, who you are made of, where you come from is going to determine what you are. It's going to determine what laws you come under, whether it be those of the United States or whether it be those of China. She was a woman, a human being. So he comes under the law for human beings. He comes under God's requirement for men, even all men, as creatures made by God. And because this woman is a Jew, he comes under the particular law of God that was set forth for the Jew. Those who were the children of Abraham, the children of Israel. And it is amazing that he uses the word woman here. There's many other places that emphasize the origins of Jesus in human flesh that link him to man. The word man is used. The word for human is used. Not here. 
This is one of the passages, like others, that specifically identify this woman as Mary or the Virgin Mary. And it's always done for a reason. It's often done, number one, to remind us that Jesus had no human father, so that this is an act of God alone. But it's also done to emphasize the particular place of women, to emphasize that aspect of it. When the part that is man or human is emphasized, which this woman, of course, is. It always emphasizes the origins of sin. That depravity is passed on to the human race by virtue of birth. That one human being begets another depraved human being. But when the word woman is used, it's emphasizing the fact that the womb, the womb is the passageway by which God sends His Son. If you say, how does God send His Son? Does He descend down from heaven, from a cloud, bodily, as a grown human being? The answer is no. He's conceived as a tiny, inconspicuous little seed. He comes into this life. He's made just like you and I are made. And that seed grows in the womb of the woman. And then out of that womb He comes in birth. Amazing, amazing place is given to women. It is women by whom God sends His Son and by which God comes into this world as a human being. Now there's a purpose in all this. This isn't the end of the work. The work of God is that He sends His Son made of a woman and made under the law, therefore. But there's a purpose to that work, an intention of that work, and that is to redeem those who are under the law. That's his purpose. Why now does God send his son made of a woman? Why now so that he comes under the law? The answer is so that he might redeem those who are under that law. And so we must consider what being redeemed means. It means to purchase, to buy. It's a legal concept that refers to the giving of something, something of value, some payment, and that purchases the freedom of another, purchases them from another owner, someone who has legal power and authority over them. That's always what redemption means. Legal ownership transfers the right and the power of one owner over something is gone, and now a new one has that. Now there's many different kinds of redemption if you look in Scripture. There's redemption of property and lands and homes. There's redemption of persons. And that always has a reference to servants or slaves, and that's the reference here. That's evident when later he says the result of this redemption is that we are no longer servants, literally slaves. And he twice characterizes our life under the law as being under bondage, being under a slavery. That's chapter uh, verse 3 and verse 9. That is, this work of God is to redeem us from our position as slaves under that law so that we now 
have a new power and authority over our life. That law no longer has a power and authority over our life. The purchase price here is not mentioned. Of course, we know it to be the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's later, it's implied later when we read that God sends forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. And we know that occurs in believing on His crucified body and shed blood. But be that as it may, the fact of redemption is emphasized here. Now, what's the exact meaning of then being redeemed from the law? Well, one reason we must distinguish with regard to that law between ceremonial and moral is that well, we are redeemed, therefore, from that law in two different senses also. And failure to make this distinction runs one into great trouble. The Reformed faith distinguishes between the ceremonial and the moral law because we are redeemed from them in two different senses. Understand? The first sense is regard to the ceremonial law. That we are redeemed from the ceremonial law means that the ceremonial law does not apply to anyone any longer. None of the sons of women need any longer, in other words, become Jews in order to receive salvation. That law that requires one to be a Jew, and understand, that was the law. Even if one were a Gentile in the Old Testament, if one were to be saved, he still had to become a Jew, a proselyte. He had to be circumcised. That law is gone. And that was the heart of the ceremonial law. And with it then also all the sacrifices. And as our creeds point out, that's partly also because they all involve the shedding of blood, including circumcision. It all involved the shedding of blood, and God will have no more blood shed for redemption. Not even as a type. So we're redeemed from the ceremonial law and that it no longer applies absolutely. With regard to the moral law, it's slightly different. It means, first of all, that it's requirement that one perfectly keep the law in order to be righteous before God no longer applies. That is, one is righteous before God not by keeping the law. That's impossible. Number two, it means that power of the law, this is the main part, the power of the law, the authority of the law, in other words, to condemn us for failing to keep the law no longer applies. You really need to put those two together. You want to understand why and how the requirement that we have to perfectly fulfill the law in order to be righteous for God no longer applies. The answer is the law no longer has any power or authority to condemn us for failing to keep the law. It's gone. Why? We've been redeemed from that law. The spilling of Christ's blood is being sent forth, made of a woman, made under the law, means that what he did, he did in perfect conformity to that law, 
So that law has absolutely no power and authority to condemn us anymore, period. But it's worth noting here that doesn't apply to everyone born of a woman, does it? That doesn't apply to everyone born of a woman. If you ask, is everyone born of a woman redeemed by Jesus Christ because he was made of a woman and made under the law? The answer is, of course not. Because if that were true, then no one could be condemned before God. And the Bible teaches that there are those condemned before God. So who is it that's redeemed from under the law? And the answer is those and those only who believe in Christ. Now that's not the end. There's a result. God is stacking purpose upon purpose here. God makes His Son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Is that the end of the story? And the answer is no. The purpose of God sending His Son is grander and greater than that. It's so that we might receive the adoption of sons. And we have to note that being added. It's an amazing thing. Number one, it teaches that adoption is a distinct and separate act of God from redemption. There's redemption over here. There's adoption over here. They're connected. They're related. But they're two distinctly separate works of God. Always remember that. There's times we may summarize the work of God. But there's important reasons why the Bible distinguishes in the works of God so that we have a better understanding of His work. We do not have an impoverished gospel or an impoverished understanding. God redeems and then there's adoption. Now the adoption here, the adoption of sons, is deliberately intended to distinguish that from the sonship of Christ, the sonship of God who is sent. His sonship is different. He's the eternal and natural Son of God. We are not the eternal and natural sons of God. In no sense are we the natural sons of God. We're sons by adoption. And adoption, of course, always emphasizes the grace of God with regard to us. It highlights the great grace and goodness of God. And now notice not simply simply because it's adoption, we're sons of God by that particular act, but that in distinction and added to redemption. You see, it's conceivable, one can imagine, that God would send forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, and left them, in a certain sense, under the law who left them simply as slaves and servants. Maybe they're under a different law, a different set of rules, but they're still slaves, they're still servants, and that's all they are. A new master and a new owner comes along and says, you no longer belong to that Lord and Master, you just simply belong to another one. And that's not our salvation, that's not our redemption. God redeemed us so that he might then engage in another work, act, which is then to adopt us as his children and heirs. You see, 
It's an act of God's grace that doesn't necessarily follow. It doesn't have to follow. Now it does. It does follow because that's the will of God. That's His purpose. But it doesn't have to. So again, it just adds grace upon grace. And now we see here the goal and purpose and the will of God for being made of a woman and redeeming us from the law. You see, adoption isn't a natural implication, doesn't naturally follow. It's according to the will of God. And on the other hand, by connecting these two, the Scripture are also pointing out that's the only way you could become sons. That's the only way I could become a son of God. In other words, it was absolutely necessary in order for us to be the sons of God that He redeem us from the law. That's the idea of the text. And the idea of the text further is clearly this, that all whom He redeems from under the law receive the adoption of sons. It's not like He redeems everyone head for head from the law and then only adopts some of those. No. No, no, no. God sent His Son made of a woman made under the law to redeem those who are under the law, and those He redeemed from under the law then are His sons. Now this Word of God is doing this, as I said, so that we focus upon the great grace and goodness of God in the sending of His Son. And how does it do that? Well, it does that by looking at the picture now this is talking about the reality, but look at the picture. What's the difference between being a servant and being a son? A lot, isn't it? You see, to be a servant, to be a slave, is simply to come under the legal obligation of a lord and a master who has the right and authority to tell you to do whatever he wants you to do. It means that all of your life and all of your work is simply a slavish obedience to the master and for the benefit of the master. And there's no recourse. There's nothing else with regard to your life that matters or means anything except obedience to the master. That's the life of a slave. You are his property. He has the right and authority to tell you what to do. End of story. You have no life. You have no individual life. You are simply a piece of property called to obey, called to react to whatever He says. And everything, everything pertains to the Master. Being a son is different. Now it's not different in a certain sense in that sons are obligated to obey their fathers too, aren't they? Just because you're a son doesn't give you the right to thumb your nose at the rules of your father, the authority of your father. You may say, well, because I'm a son, my father has no authority over me. We all know that's not true. In fact, even according to the text, the father has the right to put the son under the other authority of a tutor and governor for a while, as God did with his sons. Notice that. Notice that in a certain sense, even though the Apostle says what he says in the Old Testament too, the children of Israel were not just servants. He says they were sons. They were sons back then. 
In a very real sense, they already were redeemed from the law. Christ was coming. God had purposed this and God dealt with them as sons. But exactly because Christ had not actually come and redeemed his people yet, he put them under tutors and governors. And the point the apostle makes is there's really no difference between a little immature son who's put under tutors and governors and a servant. They just simply have to obey. But now not only are we sons, but we're adults, spiritual adults. So that helps you understand what it means to be redeemed from the law, does it not? Can we and are we ever redeemed even from the moral law? The issue is the moral law, of course. Ceremonial law, there's no dispute over that. The problem is when people want to apply the same standard and understanding of redemption from the ceremonial law to the moral law, and it's done. It goes as great wisdom in some churches and by some ministers in reaction especially to federal vision and their heresy to say that we're redeemed from the moral law in this sense. When the law says this is what you must do, exactly because we're redeemed from it, the answer of faith is no, I don't. No, I don't. You must do this. The answer is, no, I don't. And if you say I must, then you're making salvation dependent upon me. That's not true. Nothing true about that whatsoever. But that must. And the demand of the law is entirely different. It's that which comes to a son. What's that difference? Well, number one, it's given by a father. Not just a lord, not just a master. Not just one who's saying, do this or else, but I'm your father. I am the Lord God who bought you, who brought you, who redeemed you from the bondage of Egypt. Wasn't that always the words of the law? And those words were often forgotten, were they not? You see, the idea is that the great privilege of being a son is you have a father speaking to you. Oh, you obey the father too. But if you disobey the Father, that doesn't mean you're His Son no longer either, does it? You can't. You can't make your Father no longer your Father by even your earthly sins, can you not? You can't do that. It's impossible. You see, the law lost that authority. It loses that authority to condemn you forever. You are God's Son being redeemed from under the law. But now too, because you're a son, you obey that law and you desire to obey that law exactly because you're a son. The law is given. God speaks as a father in love. And you obey and desire to obey in love. That's what God did. There's more privileges that come with being a son. And that's brought out in the last part of the text when it talks about us addressing God as Father. It's amazing, it only speaks of God, of us speaking to God as Father, but really you understand that's really a summary of the entire life of the redeemed child of God under God. It takes the entire life, doesn't just simply mean that by the Spirit now we cry, Abba, Father, but we live as sons. 
we desire to obey our Father, to live unto our Father, love our Father, and then there's the whole matter of inheritance. That's really the significance of all this. If you go further down the line, you say, why, why does God send forth His Son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them under the law? Why does He redeem them from under the law so that He might adopt them as sons? And then ask, well, why might He adopt them as sons? And the answer really is so they might enjoy the privilege of being sons, the privilege and the wonder of calling on God as their Father. You see, there's something unique about the adoption of God the Father. Here again, God shows His grace and His power. You see, when we adopt, we can't do what God does. What does God do? Well, God doesn't simply adopt us and say, I'm now your legal father. Doesn't really even say, now that I'm your legal father, you have certain rights and privileges to inheritance in the future. But God actually makes us His sons. How does He do that? And the answer is he imparts his own spirit. When you adopt, we don't impart our spirit to our adopted son except by outward instruction. We can't actually give them our spirit because they're not born of us. <coughs> but God does that exactly because we are born of a woman made under the law. Part of his redemption is he redeems us from the law, adopts us to be son, and then imparts his spirit. And if you ask why it is, then we can say, Abba, Father. And the answer is because that's how the spirit speaks. This is the Spirit of God's Son. And God's Son speaks to God the Father, saying, Abba, Father. That's how God the Son speaks to His Father. Even as the Father speaks to Him, my Son. Now when that Son sends forth His Spirit, the very Spirit of God the Son, who was made of a woman, made under the law, who redeemed us from that law, His sons then cry out, Abba, Father. This explains how it is they believe. How do they believe? How do they know they are sons? How do they know they are redeemed from under the law? The answer is by faith. The very faith that comes when God imparts His Spirit. And you understand that's all part of the very redemption. When God redeemed us from under the law, He bought a lot of things. He bought great storehouse. He earned the right to an amazing inheritance. And by virtue of being sons, that inheritance is ours. And exactly because the son is dead, that inheritance begins to come ours. In him, he gives us his spirit. He gives us faith. By that faith, we cry, Abba, Father, And we can look forward to even more of that inheritance, more to come, more to come after this life, more to come when Christ the Son is sent again. That's what we need to think about and remember about God's grace and His salvation in God sending His Son. Amen. Let us pray. Lord our God, we thank Thee for the sending of Thy Son, the only begotten Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because we are sons, He sends forth the Spirit into our hearts, saying, Abba, Father, we thank Thee, 
O Lord, for this great, great salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.